Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 215, Leo X. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So as powerful and impetuous as last week's Pope Julius II was, today's Pope was an easygoing and mild man. But it's not going to work out well for him. Now, we've met our Pope for today already. He was born Giovanni de' Medici in Florence in 1475. And if you recognize that name, that's because you've been paying attention. He was the son of Lorenzo the Magnificent de' Medici. Uh, and his father destined him from high office in the church from a very early age. He was given the best tutors. He entered minor orders and was tonsured at the age of seven was made a cardinal at the age of only 13 through a deal his father cut with Pope Innocent VIII. But because of his young age, the Pope required that the new cardinal be named in pectore, meaning that his cardinal status would be kept secret until he was 16 years old. He spent that time in university studies and was given a doctorate of canon law at age 16. Now, one thing you need to know about Medici cardinals and popes, and this is the first but not the last one, is that they tend to care more about Florence than they do about the church. At least when things are happening in Florence, it usually takes their attention away from the church universal. And we see this fairly quickly on at the death of Lorenzo the Magnificent and the succession of Cardinal Medici's elder brother, Piero. Piero was not his father, and he was not a great leader. So long as Innocent VIII was alive, it wasn't much of a problem. He helped support the Medici rule in Florence, but he died in 1492. Cardinal Medici attended then his first papal conclave and was in a bind. He thought it was best to vote for Cardinal Borgia's faction since they were in the ascendancy, but his brother instructed him that it would be better for Florence if he voted for Cardinal della Rovere. In the end, he switched to Cardinal Borgia, but it was clear that they weren't on the same side. And as soon as he was elected Pope Alexander VI, Cardinal Medici headed back to Florence. Now, if you remember from past episodes, Pope Alexander came in conflict with the King of France, who marched through Italy to the gates of Rome. Cardinal Medici's brother Piero got on the wrong side of that conflict as well, not knowing when was the right moment to switch to the French side, and when he did end up doing so, bungled the whole thing. So once the King of France came through town in 1494, the people of Florence, who really didn't like Piero anyway, used it as an opportunity to overthrow the whole lot of them. They were goaded on, if you remember, by the preaching of the Dominican father Savonrola, and they succeeded in overthrowing the entire Medici family. Cardinal Medici had to escape from town dressed like a Franciscan priest, lest they recognize him. So, Cardinal Medici and his cousin Giulio left Florence and, after hanging around Italy for a while, decided to travel around Europe. It was the Renaissance equivalent of a gap year backpacking through Europe, except the college-age backpacker is also secretly a cardinal, the member of a major Italian noble family, and has geopolitical consequences for everything he does. So they set off for Germany, but were arrested pretty quickly by troops of the Holy Roman Empire, and they were sent to the emperor in 1499. After telling the emperor who they really were, they went north to what's now Belgium, then over to France, where they were again arrested and brought to the king of France, and then they were down in Lyon, and finally in 1500, they were sent back to Italy. Now, once back in Rome, the cardinal decided that he was going to try and be a fun-loving cardinal that everyone liked. He would use that to his advantage politically, helping build diplomatic connections and support for Florentines who wanted to take back Florence for the Medici family. He was extravagant and pleasure-seeking himself, so this role was pretty natural to him. He wasn't able to do much for his family in Florence, which was ruled at the time by a Florentine politician named Piero de Tommaso Soderini, who by all accounts was a pretty good ruler and who brought into his cabinet another famous Florentine, the great Machiavelli. 
Soderini was supported by France, and so as long as the French were ascendant in Rome with the Pope, they were protected from a coup in Florence. And this continued through the end of Alexander VI's pontificate into the pontificate of Pope Julius II. Now, during Pope Julius II's pontificate, Cardinal Medici came slowly but surely out of the political wilderness and into favor in Rome again. He made friends with the Pope's favorite cardinal nephew, and he was gradually entrusted with the governance of larger portions of the papal states and a portion of the papal army. Julius, if you remember, decided to turn against France, which led to the War of the League of Cambrai, which we talked about last time. Now, this was good news and bad news. Good news was that with the French influence removed, Cardinal Medici had a better chance of helping reestablish Medici control of Florence. If you remember from last time, the French decided as part of the war to call a council at Pisa to declare Julius II as deposed, which then prompted the call for the Fifth Lateran Council. More on that later. But the bad news came during the Battle of Ravenna in April of 1512. The battle was a huge defeat for the Pope and the papal troops, and since Cardinal Medici was one of the leaders of the army, he was there. And during the battle, Cardinal Medici was captured, though his cousin Giulio did manage to escape and work to help ransom the cardinal. The French held the cardinal captive for a couple of months, though he was treated with honor with the, by the French king, and he was seen as kind of a big bargaining chip. When the king of France decided to take him back to France for safekeeping, the troops conveying the cardinal were surprised in northern Italy by a small force of local Italian troops who were opposed to France. They freed Cardinal Medici, who was able to return then to the papal forces. The next month, Cardinal Medici was able to get the allies in the war to agree to reestablish Medici control over Florence, since Florence had been allies with France in the war. He was given some of the Spanish troops and marched on Florence in August of 1512, and he brutally overthrew the Florentine government, which surrendered in September, and reestablished Florentine control on September 1st. Cardinal Medici didn't want too much bloodshed. He knew that he needed people on his side, but not everyone in his family was of the same mindset. But so long as he was in charge of Florence, he was fairly merciful, which played well both in Florence and in the church. Which was important because in February of 1513, the warlike Pope Julius II died and everyone wanted peace. There was a major war still going on in northern Italy. There was a schismatic group of cardinals in Pisa. The Fifth Lateran Council was still underway. And even in Rome, not everyone liked Julius's forceful personality. They wanted someone merciful and easygoing. And eyes began looking towards Cardinal Medici. The election happened quicker than people thought was possible. The first ballot, Cardinal Medici only got one vote, but his side had planned it well so that by the evening he had won the election without too much contention. He was only 37 years old, but he was popular and the people wanted peace and more gentle, easygoing Pope. And so the people of Rome were pretty excited. On March 15, 1513, since he was only a deacon at the time of his election, the new Pope was ordained a priest. And on March 17th, he was ordained a bishop. He took the name Leo X and took possession of the Lateran Basilica in a lavish procession that cost over 100,000 ducats. Now, unfortunately, that spending and lavish tendencies would signal one of the many challenges that the new pope would face. And I think what I need to do here is just list the largest challenges rather than do them chronologically since they overlap so much. And then we'll kind of go through them. So first was the war in Italy, which does actually wrap up around this time, but which is prolonged in part because of the pope's ambition to help his brothers and nephews gain territory in Italy. The Medicis are always going to be more concerned about Florence and their family than they are about the broader church. Now, from the wars, the Pope's own lavish lifestyle, along with the massive building project of St. Peter's Basilica started by his predecessor, came the need for money, which is the second big issue. The third is the reform of the church, which is ostensibly the job of the Fifth Lateran Council, which the Pope will wrap up and which will say some good things. But 
it's about to become a lot more pressing due to the issue of an obscure German priest who pops up during this time. And finally, the fourth is the pressing issue of the continued advance of the Turks into Europe, which needs a crusade to stop them, which the Pope isn't really able to deal with, and which needs money, and which needs peace in order to make that happen. Now, all of these call for tough decisions, firm action, wisdom, and many qualities that the good-natured, pleasure-loving Pope Leo X did not have. He is reputed to have said early in his papacy, God has given us the papacy, we shall enjoy it. Not the kind of person who seems like they're willing to rise to the challenges facing the church at this time. So let's start with the war in Italy, which, if you remember from the beginning, is basically a conflict between everyone and France. France suffered a defeat in June of 1513, which meant the French king had to turn to the new pope to help arbitrate a dispute in Italy. If you remember, Julius II had excommunicated the French king and four cardinals who had broken off from the church and called a council at Pisa. Now, Leo very quickly forgave the schism. He tended to be more pro-French, but it's going to change a bunch, so get ready for that. And he reinstated the cardinals and brought some semblance of peace in northern Italy. Much of this was the product of his easygoing nature. He wasn't one to hold grudges, and he wanted to heal what the bombastic and fiery personality of his predecessor had broken. So far, so good. But a lot of this was also probably guided by his concern for his family. He wanted his brother to be the king of Naples and his nephew, the Duke of Milan, and he used a lot of his diplomatic ties as pope to try and bring that about. In 1515, when tensions again came about and France again headed into Italy, the Pope allied with both France and their enemy Spain, hoping that at least one of those bets would pay off. And concern for his family again also influenced his decisions when choosing cardinals. Pope Leo X named 42 cardinals during his pontific, which was a large number for the time. And of the first four, only one was his nephew and was only 21, and his other, his cousin Giulio, one of his key advisors. Now, another of his early cardinals was Cardinal Bernardo da Bibiana, another of his key advisors from an earlier age, who early on was vehemently anti-French and pro-Medici family, and then, because he was appointed to be an ambassador to the King of France, became very pro-French. Um, but regardless, he was very influential early on and often got the Pope into diplomatic scraps one way or another. Now, Pope Leo's general policy in northern Italy was twofold. First, obviously the extension of Medici family rule, especially if possible in Naples and Milan. And secondly, to play rival factions off one another to maintain the freedom of Italy from the domination of the great European powers. So depending on who was ascendant, Pope Leo would ally against their rivals, whether it be Spain or England or France or the Empire, and he would do so in underhanded and backhanded ways. He wouldn't come out clearly against one or the other. He would send secret letters, and he would make secret alliances, and he would just kind of flit from one to the other. In 1515, for example, he tried to bring about peace between France and England in order to use that as leverage in Italian politics and to get the King of England on his side. And because of this, he appointed the Chancellor of England, personal advisor to King Henry VIII, the ambitious Thomas Wolseley, as a cardinal. But the whole thing backfired when France used the freedom to invade northern Italy and take Milan, but his hopes that the French would appoint his family to rule Milan were dashed, and so while maintaining publicly his French alliance, he also secretly joined the anti-French alliance. But then the French won, and the Pope had to negotiate with them, which cost him a significant sum of money, and he had to name one of the brothers of one of the King of France's favorite courtiers as a cardinal. Now, I don't want to get into too many of individual Italian political machinations here, but I just want to give you a taste to show you, in general, what the Medici Pope was like. He didn't really fight like Julius II, but he did want to connive, and no one really trusted him. On top of that, wars cost money, and then after the French conquest of Milan, the Pope entered into a war for the Duchy of Urbino, which was badly run by his inept counselors, and which eventually ended it with tremendous cost, and a Medici on the throne of Urbino, but the cost was too much. 
Added to that was Leo's rather extravagant lifestyle and the construction of St. Peter's Basilica, which was still going on and will continue to go on for episodes to come. And you see that the Vatican was really broke. On top of that, a conspiracy against the Pope was discovered in the College of Cardinals, which resulted in the Pope putting several cardinals on trial, executing at least one, depriving others of their wealth and position. It had the effect of really purging those who were opposed to him from the College of Cardinals and making the rest really fear him, so that in June of 1517, when he decided to raise some money by appointing more cardinals, which was hugely scandalous, no one opposed him. And it was a scandalous consistory. Everyone knew that many of these cardinals paid for or had someone pay for the dignity to which they were being raised. But not only that, it was scandalous for how many cardinals were made. 31 new cardinals. It was the largest consistory in history to the time. And if you remember, only a couple episodes ago, the College of Cardinals was less than 20 people at times. So 31 new cardinals was totally remaking the college. Most of the cardinals were friends of the Medici family or, uh, or family members themselves, which decidedly put the College of Cardinals in the Medici camp. Now, others included members of prominent Roman families, basically one from each of the Colonna and the Orsini and the other great Roman families. And there are also, though, some good guys as well. The famous Cardinal Thomas Vio, the general of the Dominican order, who's better known by his nickname, Cajetan, was included on the list, as was the holy Dutch Bishop Adrian Floritz, the former tutor of the future Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. He was included. But overall, the consistory was incredibly scandalous and only added to Leo's reputation as a petty, greedy, and sumptuous Renaissance prince. Which would have consequences, because in 1516, a Dominican priest was sent to Germany to help raise money for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica with the permission of Pope Leo X. The priest did so by selling indulgences, and his venial course selling point was that every time a coin rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And this was the last straw for a local German Augustinian priest named Martin Luther. Luther, fed up with scandal in the church and the sale of indulgences, first wrote his bishop and then famously, in October of 1517, nailed his objections, known today as the 95 Theses, to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. Now, we're telling this story from the point of view of the papacy, and these initial actions basically got no attention in Rome. The pope was too busy with other things, mainly getting his relatives into power and trying to fight over the succession of the Holy Roman Empire, which is more on that in a second. But Luther's dispute gradually started picking up steam in Germany. By 1519, word had gotten around. Luther wasn't originally intending to break away from the church, and if his objections had been addressed at an early time by a competent theologian in a pastoral manner, things might have gone better. But by 1519 and 1520, it was too late. In 1520, Luther published his famous works, The Letter to the German Princes and the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, which signaled a definitive break from Rome. By 1520, he was starting to catch the attention of the Pope, but not necessarily for the reasons you might expect. As I mentioned before, there was a dispute over the succession of the Holy Roman Empire. Maximilian had died, and his intended successor was his nephew, Charles V, the King of Spain. The Holy Roman Emperor was still technically in an elected position, and in 1519, while this was being debated, Pope Leo was decidedly anti-Charles. Charles already ruled Naples and Spain. The empire added to this would make him tremendously powerful. Plus, at this point, Leo was more on the side of the French, seeing them as a better avenue for promoting his family. So he attempted to influence the German nobles not to choose Charles. And it was these same German nobles who were pretty indulgent towards Martin Luther. So the Pope was indulgent towards him as well, seeing him as a nice thorn in the side of Charles V. In particular, the great opponent of Charles and protector of Martin Luther was Frederick the Wise of Saxony, one of the most powerful of German nobles. 
He convinced the Pope not to condemn the works of Luther, but instead to send a representative to debate with him. The Pope sent Cardinal Cajetan, and it did not go well. The Cardinal, most people, well, well, most Catholics at least, agree won the debate, but the debate devolved into screaming, and Martin Luther escaped from possible arrest and began his turn towards breaking away from Rome altogether. But Charles V was elected anyway towards the end of 1519, and now the Pope was in a pickle. Everyone knew he was pro-French and anti-Charles, but he had lost, and his most fervent pro-French advisor, Cardinal Bibiana, died in 1520, and so he switched towards courting the emperor instead of trying to get him rejected. Now, at this point in June of 1520, Pope Leo finally condemned the work of Martin Luther and said that Luther risked excommunication by continuing his teaching. But it was too late. Everyone in Germany was talking about Luther, and Luther was getting more radical and gaining more power. He publicly burned the Pope's document, which resulted in his being excommunicated in 1521. Now, despite this, the Pope did not seem to see what a crisis was brewing in Germany. He did not react to it as if it was an existential threat to the union of the church, nor did he seem to understand the theological implications of the Lutheran doctrine. He delayed, and he was distracted from dealing with the issue and saw it all through the lens of politics and not necessarily faith. The only real way to solve the issue was collaboration with the new emperor, Charles V. Only so many bridges had already been burned with that relationship, and it was unstable. Now, Charles V heard Luther out at the famous Diet of Worms in 1521, and while he rejected Lutheran doctrine and held true to the faith of the church, Charles did not arrest Luther as a heretic as the Pope wanted. Charles also saw Luther as a useful tool at getting at the Pope. Luther, meanwhile, was intransigent, stating famously at the Diet of Worms, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And while Charles knew that he had to work against the spread of Lutheranism, it was too late. Many of his nobles, who had a lot of power in the empire, were firmly in the Lutheran camp, and to go against them would risk all-out war. At this point, the Pope fully committed to the imperial side and allied with the emperor in driving the French out of northern Italy, and they won a great victory in 1521. On his return to Rome while out hunting in November of 1521, the Pope caught a cold, and he returned to the city triumphant, and that, plus the cold, plus a night of celebration over his triumph, caused his illness to worsen. In the early morning of December 1st, 1521, the Pope died at the age of 46. He left many things undone, and the crisis, especially of the reform of the church, was only going to grow and will affect the next several episodes of this podcast. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, but fairly early on his tomb was moved to Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. He was succeeded by the reforming Pope, Pope Adrian VI, and we'll hear about him next week. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Link podcasts at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.